The reading today is from Acts chapter 15, verses, 20, verses 1 to 21. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul, telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Lovely. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Acts 15, uh, page 1110 in the Pew Bibles. Here's a question for us. What will it be like to stand before God? What will it be like to stand before God? God who is the, the judge of all things. Here's what uh, John Calvin said about this many years ago. He said, let us envisage for ourselves that judge, not as our minds naturally imagine him, 
but as he is depicted for us in Scripture, by whose brightness the stars are darkened, by whose strength the mountains are melted, by whose wrath the earth is shaken, who catches the wise in their craftiness, besides whose purity all things are defiled, whose righteousness not even the angels can bear. Let us behold him, I say, sitting in judgment to examine the deeds of me. Who will stand confident before his throne? Who can dwell with the devouring fire? It's quite a thought, isn't it? How will we stand before this God with confidence? A hugely important question. And that's what we're going to think about today. And so important that we know that we can. That we know that we can. Here's a scenario to, to begin to imagine to get us into this story. Imagine some of us are, are doing some uh, deliveries around Lurgan, some visitation on behalf of the church. We're handing out, for example, some uh, leaflets to Easter services. And, and we knock a door, and a couple open the door, and uh, when we say who they are, when, when we say who we are, we, 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 they bring us in. And they excitedly say, you're Christians, this is wonderful. We've been talking about how we need to get right with God. What do we need to do to be saved? Well, that would be wonderful, wouldn't it? But imagine then this happened. We said, well, it's, it's pretty simple. Uh, you need to believe in Jesus, and oh, you need to be circumcised, and you need to go through your fridge and get rid of all pork and bacon and uh, prawns. And uh, you also need to start observing the Sabbath really, really strictly. No, no cooking or traveling. If you do that, you'll be saved. It's entirely different from the sorts of things that we would imagine saying, isn't it? I hope, at least. Uh, uh, it's, it's pretty, it pretty much feels like a different message. And it is, of course. It's a, it's a different gospel. But this was the issue that the early church had to grapple with. What is it that makes a person a Christian? What must we do to be saved? What is it that gives us confidence before God? And the place where it was settled was in a church meeting, pretty much settled, was, was in a church gathering, a council in Jerusalem around 50 AD. We read of it here in Acts 15. We've been working our way through the book of Acts, and we've been looking at this church that, that sort of turns the, the world upside down as the news about Jesus goes out, and, and uh, as the uh, news goes out, we, we find that, that this good news about Jesus, this gospel message, is actually under attack. Right from its earliest days, there are those who, who say, well, this is not the message you should be preaching. You should be preaching this instead. And it's, it's crucial, of course, that we, we really understand what the content of the gospel message is. That's, that's, that's really key, isn't it? Because we, we live in a world today where people say, uh, they, they talk about faith as if faith is the crucial issue. There's a sense in which it is. But, but the way that people talk about it, they, they've got it wrong because they, they, they talk about, I have great faith or I have little faith, but they don't think about what their faith is in. And, and the really, really crucial thing is what our faith is in. And if faith is not in the genuine gospel, then it is misplaced because God will not bless a counterfeit gospel and a different gospel will not save. Only his truth builds lives and builds the church. And we see here that it is the content of the gospel that is being debated and disputed. What is it that brings it about? Actually, it's the success of the gospel that brings it about because it has started to take hold amongst the Gentiles. 
Now, if we'd been living 2,000 years ago, we would be very conscious that there was one great fracture line that ran through all of humanity, and it was the Jew-Gentile fracture line. You were either one or the other. And largely, there was very little sort of interaction between them. Jews and Gentiles didn't eat together, for example. And Christianity, of course, had largely grown up within Judaism. It was perceived for a time as a sort of a subsection of Judaism. The early church, for example, met in the temple courts for a while. But then, as we've seen, Gentiles started becoming Christians. First, Cornelius became a Christian. Other Gentiles then in Antioch, and then Paul and Barnabas, as we've seen, went out on their missionary journey, their first missionary journey, and there were lots of people became believers, mostly from Gentile backgrounds. And so suddenly the church that had been people from a Jewish background was now comprised of people from a Jewish and a Gentile background. And it looked as if the Gentile numbers were going to outpace the Jewish numbers. And, and some of those from a Jewish background became uncomfortable. And they wanted the new converts to come to Christ, as it were, through Judaism as they had. And so there's a, a big question that arises here that we're going to see. And, and is it is the, is the gospel, is getting right with God about faith or is it about works? Because that was the issue. So we see what it says in verse 1. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So what they were saying was to be a proper Christian, you really need to be a Jew first. You, you need to obey the law of Moses that involves circumcision. But you notice for them, it is a salvation issue. Without this, these Gentile people could not be saved. They would not be in heaven. And Paul and Barnabas argue with them. They do so sharply in verse 2. There's to be latitude on many things, but not when the gospel message is at stake. It's too important to agree to disagree on. And so this matter has to be resolved. And how do they do it? Well, the church, you notice, in Antioch doesn't do it by itself. Paul and Barnabas and others, they, they, they take this to the whole church as they meet in Jerusalem. And on the way, we find that they, they share with the other churches that they pass through and come across what God has been doing among the Gentiles, and there's great joy. And when they get to Jerusalem, it is the church as a whole that debates this. Now, it's not our point today, but it's worth noticing just how the church does this and who decides this. Some of us are interested in, in how churches organize themselves and how they make decisions and so on. You notice in verse 4 that they are welcomed by, it says here, the church and the apostles and the elders. So it's sort of the, the, the body of the church and the leadership. And so the whole church is involved at this point in the welcome. But then when it comes to debating the issue, notice it is the apostles and the elders who do that. And then when it comes to choosing some people to send off with a letter, we didn't read this bit, but later on, it is the, it is the whole church that does that uh, with the, the apostles and the elders. So, so different groups, as it were, do different things. And is it one of the things that, that we as a Presbyterian church uh, seek to, to do is to reflect some of these principles as we figure out how and who is to make various decisions. So, so this sort of thing about deciding about big principles and so on, 
that's not something that one individual congregation does together. That's a sort of a, we would call it a general assembly thing where, where various representatives from various churches all come together to, to, to make a decision as a whole. But then there are things where, where individual churches do things together, like calling ministers and appointing elders. The whole church is involved. That's how it works. Now, that's not our point today, but you can see that, that whenever we say that the Presbyterian system of church government is founded on and agreeable to the Word of God, as we sometimes say in some sort of presbytery services and so on, it's the passages like, like this that we, that we look. So the question then is, is the gospel about faith or works? Is, is getting right with God just about faith, or is there a works element to it? Well, they settle this and they say, well, actually, it is faith alone. They had much discussion, and it is Peter who speaks. He tells how it was through him that the gospel first came to the Gentiles. He was the one who went to Cornelius, you remember. And this is the last that we hear of Peter in the book of Acts. Last we hear of Peter altogether, really, apart from his letters. How wonderful, isn't it, that his last uh, words are proclaiming that we are saved by faith alone. No, we believe, verse 11, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. So if you're going to have some last recorded words, those are good ones to have. Paul and Barnabas then weigh in, and they tell what has been happening with the Gentiles through them. And then finally, James speaks. James probably a significant and influential figure, and he argues that this is what should be expected from Scripture. And he says in verse 20, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. That's a clinching argument. And the, the church is in agreement. Salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, by his grace alone. So the gospel has been clarified. And that's why you can go home today to a nice pork roast, which is great. Now, now, this raises for us all sorts of questions, doesn't it? How, what are the, the ways that people think about getting to God, relating to God? Well, helpfully, I think, there, there are three ways to have in our heads, two of them wrong and one of them right. Think about this word religion, because there are some alternatives uh, to uh, to faith in Christ alone. Uh, think about this word religion. Sometimes we use religion to describe a faith movement. So in that sense, Christianity is a religion. But there are other ways in which we describe religion as, as things that we do to please God. And so that's how we can think about it here. Whenever we think about how a person interacts with God, the Bible tells us there are basically three routes that people try, and only one of them is genuine. So you can see there on the left, first of all, there's the root of irreligion or, or non-religion. The census tells us that this is a growing part of our society. The people who, who say, uh, look, I, I just don't bother with religion at all. And, and they might say, well, I just I don't believe in God or I try to ignore God. I might have a sneaking suspicion that God exists, but, but, but I sort of push that to the side. And so generally they, they pay no attention to what, uh, for example, the Bible says or, or any other religious uh, tradition says. And they just live life by their own set of rules. And they can be incredibly moral and upright. I just do what I think is right, they say. Indeed, what is right after all, but it's just something maybe that, that we've decided. So, so that's what they say. So irreligion 
ignores God, the Bible tells us that that doesn't really get us anywhere. Then there's the path of religion. And so here are people, you see, who conclude that there's a God, and they know that they will have to deal with him, they, 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 so they reckon they ought to find him. But, but they know that if God is worth anything at all, he has got high standards, and, and so they try to reach God's standards, try to impress him. And at the risk of oversimplifying things, this is pretty much true to say that, that, that all religions have this at, at, at their heart. They, they say, this is what God is like, and here is how you can measure up to try and get into his good books, as it were. Here's how you can be accepted. You believe this, you do this, you do this, and then maybe, hopefully, God will accept you. And that's really what these opponents of Paul were promoting. If you want to be accepted by God, there are certain things that you've got to do. There are certain parts of the bargain that you've got to fulfill. You've got to believe this, but you've also got to do this and do this and do this. And then maybe he'll accept you. But there's a third way, and it is the, the Bible's way. It is the gospel of grace, which is the message that Paul was preaching. And, and you think about what that message is. Well, God says, yes, I do have high standards. They are so high that there's no way that you can reach them. No matter how hard you try or how long you spend, you, you, you'll never make yourself right. You'll never measure up. But rather than that leaving you in a position of despair, there is hope because I love you. And I've sent my son into this world to die a perfect death that wipes out your wrong, to live a perfect life, which is a kind of into to your account. And, and you don't have to do anything. You just have to, to receive it and believe it. And then live in the light of it. It's a gospel of grace. Peter sums it up in, in verse 11. We believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. So you see these three ways of interacting with God. Irreligion, religion, and the gospel. Now, the, the, the issue is that the gospel has a problem or it faces a problem. There's no problem in the gospel, but it, it faces a problem. And that is... While it is the most amazing solution to our needs, it does not sit easily with the human heart. Because there's an element of offense in it, isn't there? It, it, it tells us that there's something that we've done wrong, and we can never hope to put it right. So if, so if I walk into the house, and Katrina's in the kitchen, and she, she turns around with a great smile on her face, and I say, and she says, darling, I just want you to know, I forgive you. Well, that's good news, isn't it? Sort of. Because I'm thinking, what have I done? And whenever that message of forgiveness comes, it assumes that we're in the wrong. And so, whenever God says, that there's forgiveness available, we, we've got to acknowledge that, oh, there's something going on here, that I'm in the wrong. And the gospel's like that. It's good news, but only if we accept that, that we're in the wrong and, and we can't do anything to, to put it right. And you see, there's always been, therefore, a tendency for the gospel to be replaced by religion. And people gravitate towards religion because it, 
It feeds their pride. We feel as if we've contributed something. Religion says, yes, you have contributed. You've done this stuff. You've done your bit. You've played your part. You've met God halfway. You can hold your head up. But the gospel says, you can't even get halfway. You can't even get off the starting line. You contribute nothing, only your sin. And so there's a strong bias in the heart, you see, to reject the gospel and to opt for religion. You've got to be, we've got to be careful of that. Jesus illustrates this for us in telling us the parable of the prodigal son. It's a parable that we, we maybe know very well. You, you know that the son asked for his share of the inheritance from the father. He heads off to the far country. He, he spends all he has in, in uh, tremendous wild living, and, and he goes off. Uh, he goes horribly wrong, and he ends up feeding the pigs, which to a Jewish person, of course, was as low as you could go. And, and then you remember what he does next. He comes to his senses, it says. So he says, this situation that I'm in is a terrible situation. I need to get right with my father again. And remember, this is a picture of a sinner, the father being God. I need to get right with my father again. How do I do that? And he says, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So you see the prodigal son, the first steps he takes are realizing that his current situation is not good enough. And then secondly, thinking, I'll work for my father's acceptance. I'll work my way back into his good books. Some of us might be in that situation. Some of us might remember being in that situation where we began to feel that we needed God in our lives. And our first instinct, the instinct of our heart was, I'll work my way into his acceptance. So you see, he, this is a parable that's intended to, to give us this insight into how we are with God and how God treats us. And Jesus is saying to us here, this is what the human heart is like. When a person realizes this, this is what they're going to default to, perhaps. I'll earn my standing with him. So the debate, you see, that the church faced was, are we going to stand on the gospel, which is a gift, or are we going to opt for some sort of religion, which means that I contribute to my salvation? And we've got to recognize that there's a, there's a draw to draw ourselves into religious ways of thinking all the time. The thing is, you see, if our works pay part of, if, if our effort plays part of our, our, it pays part of our debt, it's part of our, our solution. The big question is, how do we ever know if we've done enough? How, how do we know that our modus were pure enough in the things that we did? We, we can never be sure. And the Bible tells us, don't even try, because all of your, your good works are, are, are youth, useless as far as getting right with God's concerned. They're, they're like filthy rags in His sight. But, but the great news is that as the church discovered in Acts 15, salvation is by faith in Christ alone. It, it, it doesn't rest on what we do, but on what Christ did. Remember, whenever he, he hung on the cross, just before he died, what did he say? It is finished. It is finished. Not, I've done my bit, it's over to people now to do their bit. 
No, it is finished. And a complete salvation was won by him that we are able to receive by faith. Now, ultimately, that's actually what the prodigal son did as well, because whenever he sees his father run to him and display his great love for him, he chooses to throw himself on his father's grace, and all he's able to say to him is, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's all he says. He, he, he doesn't try to pay the father back. He, he receives the robe and the sandals and the ring. He knows that he has been welcomed by a loving father. He's there by grace. So, so as, as you trust Christ, you've got to know that, that, that this is the grounds on which you stand before God. It's great news. Christ takes your sin. He has taken your sin. You have got His righteousness. And so whenever you think about what it means to stand before God, you have nothing to fear. Listen to this, this hymn, Top Ladies' hymn. A debtor to mercy alone, of covenant mercy I sing, nor fear with thy righteousness on, not my own, thy righteousness on, my person and offering to bring. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. Why? My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. Martin Luther struggled with these things, of course, on his journey to faith in Christ. At times he, he was terrified of God. And then he found what it meant to trust in salvation as a gift, to trust in Christ as a gift. And listen to his confidence as he uh, describes what happens whenever the devil reminds him that he's a sinner. He says this, so when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. We thank God for the free offer of the gospel. Let's pray. Thank you.